G'day guys, and thanks for tuning in to Staying Sane with Andy Jane, where the idea of the podcast is to help not just myself, but also you, the listeners, to stay sane while we're all in lockdown. I'm Andy, and I'm excited for you to meet the guests I have on this podcast. From small business owners, to finance directors, to expert travellers, and even my old geography teacher, there is something for all of you. I hope you enjoy this first episode where I will be talking to a close friend of mine, John Haas. My first guest on the podcast is someone I think very highly of. I only met him last year in Bend, Oregon, but our friendship has flourished. Please welcome to the podcast, John Haas. John, a California native, is currently the financial director of a multi-million dollar hot spring and retreat called Brighton Bush, located near Detroit and Oregon, where he has worked there for the past three and a half years. Prior to working for the retreat, John was in the Portland music industry, starting off in artist management before moving to the record label Tender Loving Empire, and then finally on to a music licensing company, Marmoset Music. John is also an avid traveller who has just got back to Brightonbush after living the remote life of Mexico for the past couple of months. Welcome to the podcast, John. Ah, so happy to be here, Andy. Hey, yeah, cheers. Thanks for so much for doing this and being the, uh, being the first guest on it. So, uh, how has quarantine been going for you? Uh, what are you doing to stay occupied? Oh man, uh, it's been a, been a bit of a trip. So, uh, I am, for a little perspective, in the middle of the woods up here in the Cascade Mountains, about two and a half hours east of Portland, uh, at Brighton Bush Hot Springs, uh, where I work. Um, we've laid off all staff though, uh, but we're living up here still, uh, waiting this thing out. And I am in a little tiny cabin, maybe uh, maybe 10 foot by 12 in the sort of main room, and then there's a bed in a little tiny room that's like 8 by 10, uh, and I'm in a 14-day quarantine out here. So uh, I do have internet in the cabin, uh, I have a little camp stove set up in here to boil water and uh, make my coffee in the morning, but... Uh, to stay busy, I've, I've mostly been uh, researching the uh, CARES Act, which is this law Congress passed, this $2.2 trillion stimulus here in the U.S. I'm uh, trying to understand uh, how uh, Brighton Bush might be able to uh, utilize some of the, the provisions passed in that law. Well, you're the finance director, so that's definitely something that uh, will help you as well. Um how how if what have you found out uh, that will uh, help Brighton Bush through? Uh, is there anything in the the stimulus package that is gonna um, help you guys get through this? Yeah, you know we've actually uh, been through this drill once before. So there was a a massive uh, three fires actually. One of them was really big. Two small ones that surrounded us back in 2017. We were in the sort of epicenter of these three fires. And we had to uh, lay off staff and go through the drill of uh, trying to scale down our business as fast as possible and preserve um, cash. And uh, so we kind of knew the drill when this thing was happening, but this is obviously much bigger. Everyone's having this problem, whereas during the fire evacuation, uh, it was just us (laughs) and maybe a few other people in the area. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've done a bunch of stuff to deal with the situation as many small businesses have. Uh, and then this CARES package um, has these new payroll protection loans that um, allow small businesses to borrow up to 2.5 times of their monthly um, 
their monthly uh, labor cost. So for us, that'd be a little over half a million dollars. And on top of that, that is the loan is deferred for a year. And if it's used for the purposes of uh, wages or benefits associated with those wages or rent or several other qualifying uh, reasons, the loan is completely, those portions of the loan are completely forgiven. So it actually acts as a grant. So it's a uh, quite a powerful tool actually. And, uh, um, yeah, it seems like, uh, well, I don't know how the ins and outs are actually going to work. I'll have to go through the application process, but, uh, from the outside, it appears to be a pretty cool thing that Congress has passed. Yeah. Awesome. Good on them. I was, um, it took them a while to, to pass it. There was a lot of blocking and debating and all that, but it finally got there last week, wasn't it? Yeah, it got through late last week. Um, and you know, I think there was a lot of, uh, Congress didn't want to, uh, I think during the 2008 financial crisis, they caught a lot of flack for one, not acting fast enough, right? They kept doing these small little things and realizing it wasn't enough. Um, so they acted really, uh, actually quite quickly and in a huge way, right? $2.2 trillion is a massive package, way bigger than 2008's bailout. Um, and also, it appears that they've done a much better job of making sure to get the money to small businesses and individuals. So they boosted the unemployment as well. I think combined, if you look at the small business and individual portions of the law, it actually dwarfs the big business components of it. So um, I'm cautiously optimistic about the, the way they structured the law. Fantastic. Well, that's really good to hear. Um, New Zealand's done a very similar thing. Um, I think ours was like a, um, a $162 billion package to bail out small businesses and then also help um, pay uh, businesses their employees. So it seems like the whole world is kind of in the same boat in that respect. We'll um, touch more on Brighton Bush a little bit later in the podcast. Um, I'd like to actually come back to um, working remotely. So it was your first proper time working remotely, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So I started this last summer with a bit of an experiment where we met uh, while I was uh, working remote and living in Bend and you were visiting and... Then in November, I went remote full-time, and then my first sort of international trip while being a, a digital nomad, I'm not sure how much I actually like that <laughs> term, but uh, uh, was uh, from f- early February to uh, two days ago uh, in Mexico. Yep, awesome. And uh, did you find it hard to stay driven when you're not in the office or a meeting room? Um, and do you have any advice for someone who wants to work remotely? Yeah. So in terms of the like staying motivated or driven, um, I think uh, so. I've I've also worked in the past uh, as an independent contractor, uh, taking contracts from other from larger businesses and doing their accounting. Um, in that sort of environment, I, I find it somewhat challenging to stay motivated. But in my current situation, I'm still part of a team, um, and so we're in video calls and emails and and meeting. Uh, virtually throughout the day. Uh, and so um, there's still that engagement there. And I, I, uh, I try to find um, remote working or uh, co-working spaces wherever I am because I do like that separation of where I'm living and actually waking up, uh, getting out of my pajamas, taking a proper shower, and going to another place for work. 
Um, I find it a little bit harder when I end up working from where it is I'm staying. That that line between when I'm at work and when I'm not at work uh, is a little less clear. So for my own sanity, I like to separate those two things. Uh, but yeah, I have not I've not found it difficult to stay motivated in this current setup. My my coworkers keep me on my toes. Yep. No, that's awesome. Um, and yeah, any advice for anyone who wants to work remote? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, just if you have the opportunity, go for it. I mean, one of the things, you know, we're in this sort of crazy moment in history right now where one of the upsides, one of the silver linings of this situation, in my opinion, is that a lot of people are getting to use the tools of remote work for the first time. And hopefully that reduces some of the stigma. Uh, You know, you can, it's quite, um, incredible the amount of time you get back and how efficient you can be when your commute is, uh, you know, in my case, from uh, a hostel uh, five blocks away to the uh, co-working space because I, I pick them next to each other or from your bedroom to your home office um, and uh, the environmental implications of that and, and reducing commutes are better. Um, so, uh and I guess in terms of advice, advice is to start the conversation. So with me, it was um, just shy of a year almost of the, you know, going remote in these little ways here and there. I'd go for a couple weeks uh, and go visit some friends on the other side of the country and I'd work remote during those periods. Um, and the team got used to these tools and the technology and uh, we slowly eased into that. And then eventually we were everyone on the team was comfortable with me going fully remote. Um, yeah. So, uh, start that conversation with your boss if you can. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I've always wanted to work remote. I hopefully one day will be able to be in the sort of like line, um, that you can do that. Currently (laughs) working retail is not something you can work remotely in, but who knows, hopefully one day. Um, so you're a California native, Um, and it seems like so many people want to move to California and Los Angeles, um, but you, on the other hand, moved from California up to the PNW. Uh, what was, uh, the decision behind that? Yeah, so I grew up in Northern California, a pretty small town east of Sacramento, west of Lake Tahoe, so in the, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, and, uh, I always loved the music coming out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the the indie rock from Portland, whether it was the Decemberists or uh, the music coming out of Seattle, Death Cab for Cuties, and uh, maybe I'm sort of dating myself here. I'm 33, so uh, that early 2000s indie music from the Pacific Northwest um, was, you know, my my favorite thing growing up. Uh, and so, uh, after college, I had some friends who were up in Portland. Uh, a good friend of mine had moved up there to be with her boyfriend, and he was in a band that was doing pretty well in town. And uh, in college, I had started working with some bands, uh, kind of you know, in air quotes, managing bands. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but uh, helping them set up gigs and uh, you know, getting their records in the local record store back when people bought CDs. Uh, and uh, so when I finished college, uh, I gave my friend Carrie a call and uh, they said I could sleep on the floor of their living room until I found a place in Portland. And I did it and slept on their floor for 
maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks and found a house and moved in. And uh, Carrie's boyfriend at the time, now a husband, was playing bass in a band called Ila Bamba. And uh, Ben introduced me to the manager of their band. And I, this was, uh, oh, what was this, 2010, 2011? Uh, so we were still in the throes of the recession caused by the housing collapse a few years earlier. Um, and uh, so I talked my way into an internship and uh, up in Portland there and made myself uh, at the artist management company that was managing Ila Bamba and made myself indispensable and eventually got a job. And uh, you know that was the beginnings of my uh, time in the Pacific Northwest. Like you said, like the Portland music scene is fantastic. I absolutely love the uh, indie music scene. Even now, at the moment, like there's a New Zealand band that relocated um, over to Portland, Unknown Motor Orchestra, and uh, yeah, the indie scene is just popping off over there, and I love it so much. I think it's not even just the indie music vibe. Portland has such an indie vibe as a city itself as well, which I I think nowhere else in the world can replicate, which is really cool. Um, so now that you've touched on, uh, working in the music industry, so a lot happens in the music industry that goes unseen and unheard. Uh, can you shed some light into what's involved in discovering new talent and seeing it through to a record production? Yeah. So working in artist management, uh, I worked with a woman, uh, named Ingrid Renan, who, uh, came up through a record label and and management group, but the Rockstar uh, uh, imprints, and worked with a lot of really cool bands. And uh, she was really incredible at that. So that was kind of her, her niche, was discovering uh, talent from sort of the house show level and bringing them up to uh, mostly regional touring, sort of West Coast uh, level bands. And she did that with bands like Starfucker and Blitz and Trapper and uh, Ila Bamba and a band that's still quite popular in Portland uh, and the West Coast called Typhoon. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's just like uh, a lot of hanging out at house shows and getting to know the different scenes in Portland. You know, there are these little kind of cohorts of artists that cluster together. And uh, then from the next step up there, there's... Uh, the the smaller venues where uh, bands start cutting their teeth and um, it, it's really not glamorous um, quite honestly you know it's lots of really shitty old 15 passenger vans and uh, you know three four day tours up to Seattle trying to build a following and uh, that sort of thing um, but you know it, it, it's a lot of fun I discourage anyone I meet who wants to do that <laughs> <laughs> from doing it. <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, there there's just so little money in it. And I know people say, like, I don't do it for the money, but, um, you know, uh, I mean, uh, maybe, spoiler alert, I left the music industry, but there's a certain point at which you just see so many talented people um, get hit this wall uh, and realize, you know, you can't make a living off touring six months a year in a meaningful way, except for a very small percentage of bands. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's like trying to become a professional athlete. Um, there are so many people that are good enough and it, it really, you know, there's so many bands that are incredibly talented 
and at a certain level it becomes about luck and uh yeah it's just really hard <laughs> oh that's cool hey thanks for sharing some light there um who was the coolest musician uh you worked with while you were um at tender loving empire well, I mean, I, I liked all, all the bands we worked with. So, uh, you know, Ila Bamba is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I love those folks. And Typhoon is probably the most popular um, in the region. I think the the sort of moment that was the most incredible was when um, I was uh, managing Ila Bamba and they were touring with their friends who were like a fairly unknown band from Colorado called the Lumineers. And uh, I had advanced this tour. Advancing is the process of contacting all the venues and getting the rider and what time load in is and sending them all the information about how the band's equipment needs to be set up, yada, yada. Uh, and uh, Ilabamba and Lumineers were touring together. And about, oh, I don't know, a week or two into the tour, uh, and these were 100-person room venues, 200-person room venues, maybe a Friday or Saturday in like a five or 600-person venue, but not sold out. But, you know, a lot of people there. But a couple weeks into the tour, um, I'm walking by my housemate's room, and I hear this the, him playing this song over and over again. And it's Ho Hey by the Lumineers. And I was like, how do you know this song? Like, this is, you know, one of my bands is on tour with this band right now. And he's like, I love this song. And... You know, that song just started blowing that up. That song blew up everywhere, like, Oh, yeah, huge. Well. And by the time the tour got to New York, it was a national tour, we were moving to different venues, uh, and now the tour was uh, in New York instead of, like, a, you know, 300-person room. It was, like, a five or 6,000-person room with two nights sold out back-to-back, -back, you know, uh, just next level, and the Lumineers were scheduled to play on the, uh, uh, what is that, the Grammys, and uh, it, was, it was wild to watch, uh, and then it, it's also wild to see, like, even when opening for something like that, uh, the industry's just so pyramidal, you know, like, unless you're that band, you're not making that kind of money. Uh, so in some ways it was like incredible. In other ways it was like discouraging to be that close to like the thing that was happening in, in that moment in music and still be like so far from it all. But um, that, that was the coolest thing to watch. That'd be pretty amazing. And now like everyone knows who the Lumineers are as well, which is uh, something pretty cool. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I did have a question, um, basically asking what was your decision, um, or why did you make the decision to move away from the music industry, but you've kind of already uh, touched on that. Uh, so are there any days where you still miss the music industry, or not really? Uh, there are. I mean, uh, one of the things I love about working in music is that... Uh, music itself is is a thing that brings people together right like uh several thousand people will go to a venue to see a particular artist because they all connect around the this music right it, like it's a thing that creates community creates culture you know that sort of thing and um being in the mix of that um to me was really exciting and really fun and uh then going to those events you know the the culmination of all that work uh, and uh, being a part of the mix, uh, I really loved. And, and the extended 
network because uh, for me at least uh, the process or the part of the music industry I was in for the most part early on I, I eventually went into music licensing which was a little bit less connected to that part of uh, of the industry but working for a record label and working for uh, artist management uh, I was going to a lot of shows and at those shows you know you see all these people and you have this really big network of connections and uh, I, I do miss that part as a as a pretty social person uh, that job came with like this big social scene that uh, my current job doesn't quite have. So obviously uh, we've talked a lot more than what we just have on the podcast. Um, you told me you spent a year uh, soul searching. Do you have any advice you want to share uh, for those who are in need of some self-discovery? Yeah, uh, advice. Um, well, I, I guess the... The thing that has worked for me, and I don't know if it will work for everyone, is just to keep trying as many things as possible and getting into as many situations as possible to figure out what it is uh, you want to do. Um, I think uh, or when I was younger, I used to find myself quite uh, suffering from analysis paralysis kind of thing overthinking what it is I want to do and should I do this or should I do that and I worked for someone who uh, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it but essentially said uh, you know the goal is not to make the right decision or, or, or rather the goal is not to make the perfect decision or even the right decision the goal is to make a decision and to continue to make decisions and until you get to the right place, right? So uh, just make a decision, go for something, try it, and remember that you can always make another decision quickly thereafter. And, and the better you get at making decisions in life uh, and, and moving forward, the, the better. So that year of soul searching, I, I traveled for three months. I worked uh, as a project accountant in construction, I uh, didn't like that. I started my own accounting, bookkeeping, finance directing, uh, consulting, and I ended up taking on six clients and realized I really didn't like that. It was, you know, too too isolated a gig. Uh, I wasn't part of a team. Uh, I didn't realize how important that was to me until I tried that. Uh, I then uh, managed a sculpture studio, Casbron Sculpture Studio, as the business manager there in Portland for a while. Um, actually enjoyed that a bit um, and uh, realized that being connected <clears throat> to something creative or in the arts was something I very much enjoyed. It didn't necessarily need to be music. Um, the, the visual art world was also very inspiring to me. Um, and then, uh, meanwhile, months before all of that, at the very beginning of it, I had submitted an application to this weird uh, hippie co-op intentional community slash hot springs retreat center that does 40,000 guest nights a year in the mountains. And, you know, nine months or uh, 10 months after submitting that application, they reached out to me for an interview and uh, ended up out here. So, yeah, during that period of soul searching, it was just trying to put myself in as many situations as possible, and I eventually found this one that uh, I really like.
you know, dating all the way back to sort of the ancestral period, for lack of a better term, was a place in the Cascade Mountains which separate um, sort of the wet western side of Oregon with the dry desert side of Oregon to the east was a place where uh, Native American tribes would gather. And so they found uh, shells and uh, jewelry that only could have come from the coast. And they also find stones and other tools that could only have come from the eastern side of the state here. So this particular location has a really long history of um, people uh, gathering and uh, being convivial and, you know, sharing food and soaking and, and those sorts of things. Um, I've been told that it was also a place that a lot of the tribes, it was like neutral ground. Um, no one lived up here year round, though. Uh, the snow was very heavy. Uh, it, it can be heavy depending on the year. Um, it can get you know, we can get six or seven feet some years, we can get no snow other years. Um, and then uh, it was a homestead in the 1800s. And uh, in 1929, I believe it was, it was turned into a proper hot springs retreat center, sort of the version of it we have today started there. Um, it was the only thing out here, the road was built to get to Brighton Bush. The road dead ended at Brighton Bush and people would come up and horse and buggy and uh, people wouldn't necessarily soak in the springs back then. It was more common for people to, um, uh, they'd get a little tin cup and they would dip it in the spring and they'd drink the water. And each different spring was said to have different healing powers. Um, we don't recommend drinking the water anymore. Uh, our regular testing shows that there are levels of arsenic in it and there are no such thing as a healthy level of arsenic to ingest. It is great for soaking, but not for drinking. <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of beneficial minerals in the water, though, however, um, aside from the arsenic. Um, and so uh, the place went dormant in uh, the, the uh, 60s after a massive flood and sat vacant for about uh, 10 years. And the family that owned it, because people were trespassing on the property and ripping up, there's a beautiful old lodge from 1929. People were ripping up floorboards and setting on fire. And so... The family actually went down to the Salem, which Salem, Oregon is the closest uh, major city, went to the Salem uh, Mental Institution, uh, which is the institution which One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is based on, that author's from Salem. They uh, found a high-functioning person there, brought them up to the retreat center. So this is sort of like, <laughs> you know, The Shining or something, right? Uh, and they lived here and walked around with a shotgun with uh, salt rounds in it and protected the property for many, many years, and they'd just drop off food for this person. And then in 77, the uh, a man named Alex Beamer bought the property, which had been vacant for 10 years with this security guard from the insane asylum protecting it, and Alex decided he wanted to start an intentional community. And put flyers up at festivals all over the West Coast, like, hey, I can't pay you anything, but if you want to come help build this place, uh, you can be one of the owners. We'll own it cooperatively. And uh, all the cabins here were, were sunk in the mud from the massive flood that had come through. It took them three years. So about a dozen people showed up, and it took them three years to get the place into a condition where they could start having guests again. Um, and that eventually takes us to where we are today. Um, now we're um, a worker-owned co-op that has about 
uh, 45 or so owner members. So if you work here for a year, you can apply to be uh, an owner member, which you then get one share of uh, the stock uh, for $500, which is very little. And uh, you then are part of the highest decision-making body in the organization called the membership. From the membership, the board of directors is formed. And the board of directors is five people elected to run the business. Uh, you know, most of the people on the board of directors, in fact, all of them right now, have never been on a board of directors before. It's quite an experiment, right? We have, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm one of three directors. Uh, my position title has currently changed, but for the sake of this conversation, I'm one of three directors. And uh, our power structure is very circular. So let's use the business director as an example. The business director technically has the ability to hire and fire anyone. So when, say, someone on our kitchen team is working in their capacity on the kitchen team, the business director is that person's boss. And if someone on the, the kitchen team, let's say, put food out and didn't include that nuts were included and someone had a reaction to that, the business director would fire that person and or, you know, there would there would be repercussions for that. But that same person might also sit on the board of directors. And when in a board meeting, that person is the business director's boss and hires and fires the business director. So we have this this circular power structure that's very interesting. Um, and everyone, uh, almost everyone, except for three or four of us who works for Brighton Bush, lives at Brighton Bush. So there's a big river that runs through the middle of our 150 acres. And on one side is our staff village. And on the other side is where the guests are. And so we are each other's neighbors, we're each other's coworkers, we're each other's sometimes lovers, you know, relationships form in the community. Uh, you know, uh, all of these relationships in one, uh, and as you can imagine, that could be very, very challenging and often is. Um, so yeah, it's an intentional community, a worker-owned co-op, uh, and we're totally off the grid is another part of it. So we produce all our own electricity. Um, from a hydroelectric dam, uh, or excuse me, turbine, not a dam. We have a fish diversion. And uh, that produces uh, just shy of 50 kilowatts for the whole place, which is not very much for how many people we have here. So uh, people are very aware of uh, electrical consumption up here. You have sort of a wattage uh, allowance that each person is allowed to use. Um, we produce all our own heat from the geothermal wells. Um, so all we have these deep geothermal wells go into the earth, uh, water at about 200 degrees comes out of them. We then pipe all that water into all the cabins. There's something like 100 buildings on land. And uh, then you have radiators, you know, old-timey radiators that you turn a little knob on, and that increases and decreases the heat. Um, so, yeah, it's this, it's this really weird hippie experiment in the woods um, that is somehow also financially viable and successful. Guys, honestly, um, yeah, when I went to Brydenbush last year, it's it's nothing I've ever seen before. It really is an off-the-grid community. So if that's something um, that kind of you're interested in and maybe wanting to um, <clears throat> look into doing in the future or would just even like a, a experience at the retreat itself, um, feel free to hit me up and I will... I will give you uh, some information to either make a booking or get in contact with someone and we can definitely uh, help you out there because honestly it is the most amazing little community there. Um, 
like even when I just walked, I was there for a day and when I walked through the community and um, everyone was so friendly and came up to you and said hi and it was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. And I thank you, John, for showing me Brightenbush. It was really, really cool. Um, so just a, a few questions on your, your uh, career now. Um, what has been the hardest thing you have had to do in your career so far? Oh, man. Uh, there are a couple instances of being a part of and or being responsible for having to um, essentially fire someone that have been really, really challenging. Um, and for the sake of privacy, I, I won't get into the details of those. But um, at Brightonbush in particular, um, where this place is, becomes people's home and their job and their community... Um, there have been two instances of um, being part of that decision-making body, um, and uh, that eventually informed someone that they had to move on, and that that's really, really, really hard to do, um, especially you know when you know you care and love these people and you see all different sides of them when you live in community with them and work with them. Uh, you know, people are really com full humans in that picture. It's not like you just bring this professional version of yourself to work and, and hide these other parts of yourself. You can't do that out here. So um, that's been really hard. Uh, and then there have been a couple of other things. So, I mean, this thing we're going through right now is a bit of a challenge. But I touched on earlier that in 2017 at Brighton Bush, we were... Uh, confronted with uh, like really an existential threat to our existence. There was this fire moving towards us and we could watch it coming, uh, coming over the mountain. Uh, and uh, there and then two other fires started on opposite sides of us, triangulating right at us. And we had to close to guess, obviously. Um, we left behind 10 sort of volunteer. We have our own volunteer fire department out here that staff are part of. Um, because when you're out this far away from everything, you have to be responsible for your own um, safety in that way. Um, uh, and so 10 people stayed behind as volunteer firefighters to try to protect buildings from because embers and ashes were landing nearby. Uh, another 10 of us, uh, of which I was part of, uh, went out to the Oregon coast where we rented a house, uh, a three bedroom, uh, three bathroom house that actually I think at one point there were 15 of us out there. Uh, all living together. I set up a tent outside, beautiful view of the ocean, but we were running the entire organization, this 15 of us, and there's normally like 70 of us, uh, and the 15 of us, and then we eventually got down to about 10 or so, uh, we're handling advance reservations and trying to keep the whole community uh, informed of what was going on, while the whole rest of the community was just scattered, right? Everyone had to leave, and so some people went and stayed with families, some big groups of people went camping this was uh in august and september um and uh it was really really a challenge to cobble that all together uh, it was lots and lots of coffee all day then a couple of drinks at night to <laughs> counterbalance the coffee and uh high stress but we made it through that and that's actually made this situation much easier because that was a sort of a stress test for our organization and and as the finance director, I got to really observe the mechanics of the finances in a situation when revenue um, grinds to a halt. Um, so we were much more prepared for this. You know, we had those systems in place. We 
had an uh, incident management team structure figured out and a uh, public information officer. And you know, we've been through the drill. Um, and uh, but yeah, that, that was also really challenging. Just a couple of more uh, personal questions. Um, where So you've traveled a fair bit. Uh, what has been your favorite place you've visited so far? My favorite trip uh, has been to the Republic of Georgia when I was, it was either 19 or 20. Um, so it was 2005 or six, and George W. Bush was still president. And uh, a buddy from college and myself, my buddy Angel, um, we had met someone uh, at university who was from Tbilisi, Georgia. And both of us wanted to explore the world. And we're like, hey, we, have, uh, we know someone who's going to be there this summer. Uh, let's go. And so I flew out and met Angel in Barcelona, uh, where his grandparents lived. And we caught a train to Paris. And then a couple of flights later, we were in Tbilisi. And uh, that city was just so incredible. First of all, we, we came across no other tourists back in 2005, 2006. Uh, part of me can't believe my parents at that time were like so calm, as calm as they were about it. Uh, looking back on it, we were going to you know, they had had civil war not that many years before, and Russia was fueling the civil war up up in the Caucasus Mountains, and a few years after we left, uh, another war broke out up in the, the other side of the Caucasus Mountains, south of Setsia or whatever it was, and the first one was in Aprasia. Um But that culture is just so incredible. Um, uh, I believe the Georgians might have been the first European military when, like, Genghis Khan or one of his, or Kublai Khan, one of them crossed uh, the Caucasus Mountains into Europe. Um, you know, there's been trade through there. There's, you know, the Russian influence, the European influence. Um, we got robbed at knife point at one point and shaken up pretty good. Um, and just, you know. Jeez, that would have been scary. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's like the the trip of a lifetime. And we backpacked then through the eastern side of Turkey, down uh, south through Georgia, around the Black Sea and uh, to eastern Turkey and then made our way over to Istanbul and then a boat to Athens and from Athens back to Barcelona. Um, but yeah, Georgia will have a special place in my heart. Um, it has its own language, its own alphabet that very has it's one of the smallest language groups in the world. Like it's just a it's a fascinating place. Might have to add it to the bucket list then. Um, I I haven't heard that much about Georgia, so yeah, maybe uh, I should visit it one day. I have heard that whole um, former Soviet um, sort of area is uh, very interesting to visit, so uh, might have to go there someday. And just a final question. Um, what has uh, been your highlight moment in your life so far, if you can pick out one? Highlight moment in my life so far, you know, uh, if I was married, that would I could say my marriage. If I had kids, that's always an easy one. The day the day my child was born, um, but I nothing comes to mind as like some singular prolific moment in which you know marks a transformation from one version of John to the next version of John. Um, just a series of, you know, incremental, uh, things. 
Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer to that one, unfortunately. No, that's all good. That's all good. Um, but you are a super interesting person to talk to anyway, so it doesn't even matter. <laughs> <laughs> even though I have no highlight. <laughs> that you can think of currently when being put on the spot, so... Yeah, uh, and then I was trying to rack my brain for a low light as well, uh, but uh, may- maybe we'll save that for a personal conversation. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> anyway, John, hey, thanks for being uh, my first guest in the podcast. I'm really excited to put out these uh, these series, um, and thank you for allowing me to, um, uh, yeah, introduce you to uh, my friend group and uh, whoever is going to listen to the podcast and uh, allow us to stay sane together for the last little while. Um, And I hope everyone else listening to the podcast uh, has also been able to stay sane this uh, last while. Um, I'm super excited to catch up with you and Bend this summer again when I uh, get back over there. God knows when that's going to be now. Um, But... We have to sink a few craft beers when I do get back over there. Yeah, man, it's. it's uh, I'm so glad uh, to have met you last summer. It's been. Uh, it's a. It's a, a wonderful international friendship. I always look forward to uh, catching up with you. And uh, again, we'll do bend again this summer when all this blows over. Uh, so yeah, that was John. Everybody, thanks very much for being on the podcast today. I really do appreciate you uh, spending some time with me and talking about life. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting over there to Bend uh, sometime this year, whenever that will be. If anyone is wanting to feature in the podcast, uh, you're more than welcome to hit me up on Instagram or Facebook. I do have a little bit of a queue at the moment for the podcast. There's 11 guests, but we'll try and sort something out. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you guys stay safe and sane during this uh, yeah, really unprecedented time. All the best, everyone, and we'll see you next episode.